This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Out of the Earth by Arthur Mackin. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon. It runs 21 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Out of the Earth by Arthur Mackin There was some sort of confused complaint during last August of the ill behaviour of the children at certain Welsh watering places. Such reports and vague rumours are most difficult to trace to their heads and fountains. None has better reason to know that than myself. I need not go over the old ground here, but I am afraid that many people are wishing by this time that they had never heard my name. Again, a considerable number of estimable persons are concerning themselves gloomily enough, from my point of view, with my everlasting welfare. They write me letters, some in kindly remonstrance, begging me not to deprive poor sick-hearted souls of what little comfort they possess amidst their sorrows. Others send me tracts and pink leaflets, with allusions to the daughter of a well-known canon. Others, again, are violently and anonymously abusive. And then, in open print, in fair book form, Mr. Begby has dealt with me, righteously, but harshly, as I cannot but think. Yet it was also entirely innocent, nay, casual, on my part. A poor linnet of prose I did but perform my indifferent piping in the evening news, because I wanted to do so, because I felt that the story of the bowman ought to be told. An inventor of fantasies is a poor creature, heaven knows, when all the world is at war. But I thought no harm would be done, at any rate, if I bore witness, after the fashion of the fantastic craft, to my belief in the heroic glory of the English host, who went back from Mons fighting and triumphing. But then, somehow or other, it was as if I had touched a button, and set in action a terrific, complicated mechanism of rumours that pretended to be sworn truth, of gossip that posed as evidence, of wild taradiddles that good men most firmly believed. The supposed testimony of that daughter of a well-known canon took parish magazines by storm, and equally enjoyed the faith of dissenting divines. The daughter denied all knowledge of the matter, but people still quoted her supposed sure word, and the issues were confused with tales, probably true, of painful hallucinations and deliriums of our retreating soldiers, men fatigued and shattered to the very verge of death. It all became worse than the Russian myths, as in the fable of the Russians, it seemed impossible to follow the streams of delusion to their fountainhead, or heads. Who was it who said that Miss M knew two officers who, etc., etc.? I suppose we shall never know his lying, deluded name. And so, I dare say, 
it will be with this strange affair of the troublesome children of the Welsh seaside town, or rather of a small group of towns and villages lying within a certain section or zone, which I am not going to indicate more precisely than I can help, since I love that country, and my recent experiences with the bowmen have taught me that no tale is too idle to be believed. And, of course, to begin with, no one knew how this odd and malicious piece of gossip originated. So far as I know, it is more akin to the Russian myth than to the tale of the Angels of the Mons. That is, rumour preceded print. The thing was talked of here and there, and passed from letter to letter, long before the papers were aware of its existence. And here it begins to resemble rather the Mons affair. London and Manchester, Leeds and Birmingham, were muttering vague unpleasant things, while the little villages concerned basked innocently in the sunshine of an unusual prosperity. In this last circumstance, as some believe, is to be sought the root of the whole matter. It is well known that certain east coast towns suffered from the dread of air raids, and a good many of their usual visitors went westward for the first time. So there is a theory that the East Coast was mean enough to circulate reports against the West Coast out of pure malice and envy. It may be so. I do not pretend to know. But here is a personal experience, such as it is, which illustrated the way in which the rumour was circulated. I was lunching one day at my Fleet Street Tavern. This was early in July, and a friend of mine, a solicitor of Sergeant's Inn, came in and sat at the same table. We began to talk of holidays, and my friend, Edis, asked me where I was going. To the same old place, I said. Manavan, you know we always go there. Are you really? said the lawyer. I thought that coast had gone off a lot. My wife has a friend who's heard that it is not all that it was. I was astonished to hear this, not seeing how a little village like Manavan could have gone off. I had known it for about ten years, as having accommodation for about twenty visitors, and I could not believe that rows of lodging houses had sprung up since the August of 1914. Still, I put the question to Edis. Trippers? I asked, knowing firstly that trippers hate the solitudes of the country and the sea. Secondly, there are no industrial towns within cheap and easy distance. And thirdly, that the railways were issuing no excursion tickets during the war. No, not exactly trippers, the lawyer replied. But my wife's friend knows a clergyman who says that the beach at Tremaine is not at all pleasant now, and Tremaine's only a few miles from Manavan, isn't it? In what way not pleasant? I carried on my examination. Pierrots and shows and that sort of thing. I felt it could not be so, for the solemn rocks of Tremaine would have turned the liveliest Pierrot to stone. 
he would have frozen into a crag on the beach, and the seagulls would carry away his song and make it a lament by lonely booming caverns that look on Avalon. Edith said he had heard nothing about showmen, but he understood that since the war, the children of the whole district had gone quite out of hand. Bad language, you know, he said, and all that sort of thing. Worse than London slum children. One doesn't want one's wife and children to hear foul talk at any time, much less on their holiday. They say that Castle Coke is quite impossible. No decent woman would be seen there. I said, Really? That's a great pity, and changed the subject. But I could not make it out at all. I knew Castle Coke well, a little bay. Bastioned by dunes and red sandstone cliffs, rich with greenery. A stream of cold water runs down there to the sea. There is the ruined Norman castle, the ancient church, and the scattered village. It is altogether a place of peace and quiet and great beauty. The people there, children and grown ups alike, were not merely decent, but courteous folk. If one thanked a child for opening a gate, there would come the inevitable response, and welcome kindly, sir. I could not make it out at all. I didn't believe the lawyer's tales. For the life of me, I could not see what he could be driving at. And for the avoidance of all unnecessary mystery, I may as well say that my wife and child and myself went down to Manavan last August. And had a most delightful holiday. At the time, we were most certainly conscious of no annoyance or unpleasantness of any kind. Afterwards, I confess I heard a story that puzzled and still puzzles me. And this story, if it be received, might give its own interpretation to one or two circumstances which seemed, in themselves, quite insignificant. But all through July, I came upon traces of evil rumours affecting this most gracious corner of the earth. Some of these rumours were repetitions of Edith's gossip. Others amplified this vague story and made it more definite. Of course, no first-hand evidence was available. There never is any first-hand evidence in these cases. But A knew B, who had heard from C, that her second cousin's little girl had been set upon and beaten by a pack of young Welsh savages. Then people quoted a doctor in a large practice in a well-known town in the Midlands to the effect that Tremaine was a sink of juvenile depravity. They said that a responsible medical man's evidence was final and convincing. But they didn't bother to find out who the doctor was, or whether there was any doctor at all, or any doctor relevant to the issue. Then the thing began to get into the papers in a sort of oblique by the way sort of manner. People cited the case of these imaginary bad children in support of their educational views. One side said that these unfortunate little ones. Would have been quite well behaved if they had had no education at all. The opposition declared that continuation schools would speedily reform them 
and make them into admirable citizens. Then the poor Arfenshire children seem to become involved in quarrels about Welsh disestablishment and in the question of the miners. And all the while they were going about behaving politely and admirably as they always do behave. I knew all the time that it was all nonsense, but I couldn't understand in the least what it meant, or who was pulling the wires of rumour, or their purpose in so pulling. I began to wonder whether the pressure and anxiety and suspense of a terrible war had unhinged the public mind, so it was ready to believe any fable, to debate the reasons for happenings which had never happened. At last, quite incredible things began to be whispered. Visitors' children had not only been beaten, they had been tortured. A little boy had been found impaled on a stake in a lonely field near Manavan. Another child had been lured to destruction over the cliffs at Castle Coke. A London paper sent a good man down quietly to Arfon to investigate. He was away for a week and, at the end of that period, returned to his office and, in his own phrase, threw the whole story down. There was not a word of truth, he said, in any of these rumours. No vestige of a foundation for the mildest forms of all this gossip. He had never seen such a beautiful country. He had never met pleasanter men, women or children. There was not a single case of anyone having been annoyed or troubled in any sort or fashion. Yet all the while the story grew, and grew more monstrous and incredible. I was much too occupied in watching the progress of my own mythological monster to pay much attention. The town clerk of Tremaine, to which the legend had at length penetrated, wrote a brief letter to the press, indignantly denying that there was the slightest foundation for the unsavoury rumours, which, he understood, were being circulated. And about this time we went down to Manavan and, as I said, enjoyed ourselves extremely. The weather was perfect, blues of paradise in the skies, the seas all a shimmering wonder, olive greens and emeralds, rich purples, glassy sapphires changing by the rocks, far away a haze of magic lights and colours at the meeting of sea and sky. Work and anxiety had harried me, I found nothing better than to rest on the thymy banks of the shore, finding an infinite balm and refreshment in the great sea before me, in the tiny flowers beside me. Or we would rest all the summer afternoon, on a shelf high on the great cliffs, and watch the tide creaming and surging about the rocks, and listen to it booming in the hollows and caverns below. Afterwards, as I say, there were one or two things that struck cold, but at the time those were nothing. You see a man in an odd white hat pass by and think little or nothing about it. Afterwards, when you hear that a man wearing just such a hat had committed a murder in the next street five minutes before, then you find in that hat a certain interest and significance. Funny children 
was the phrase my little boy used, and I began to think they were funny indeed. If there be a key at all to this queer business, I think it is to be found in a talk I had not long ago with a friend of mine named Morgan. He is a Welshman and a dreamer, and some people say he is like a child who has grown up, and yet has not grown up like the other children of men. Though I did not know it, while I was at Manavan, he was spending his holiday time at Castle Coke. He was a lonely man and liked lonely places, and when we met in the autumn, he told me how, day after day, he would carry his bread and cheese and beer in a basket to a remote headland on that coast known as the Old Camp. Here, far above the waters, are solemn, mighty walls, turf grown, circumvallations, rounded and smooth with the passing of a many thousand years. At one end of this most ancient place, there is a tumulus, a tower of observation perhaps, and underneath it slinks the green deceiving ditch that seems to wind into the very heart of the camp, but in reality rushes down to sheer rock and a precipice over the waters. Here Morgan came daily, he said, to dream of Avalon, to purge himself from the fuming corruption of the streets. And so, he told me, it was with singular horror that one afternoon, as he dozed and dreamed and opened his eyes now and again to watch the miracle and magic of the sea, as he listened to the myriad murmurs of the waves, his meditation was broken by a sudden burst of horrible raucous cries, and the cries of children too, but children of the lowest type. Morgan says that the very tones made him shudder. They were to the ear what slime is to the touch. And then the words, every foulness, every filthy abomination of speech, blasphemies that struck like blows from the sky, and sank down into the pure shining depths, defiling them. He was amazed. He peered over the green wall of the fort, and there in the ditch he saw a swarm of noisome children, horrible little stunted creatures with old men's faces, with bloated faces, with little sunken eyes, with leering eyes. It was worse than uncovering a brood of snakes or a nest of worms. No, he would not describe what they were about. Read about Belgium, said Morgan, and think they couldn't have been more than five or six years old. There was no infamy, he said, that they did not perpetrate. They spared no horror of cruelty. I saw blood running in streams, as they shrieked with laughter, but I could not find a mark of it on the grass afterwards. Morgan said he watched them and could not utter a word. It was as if a hand held his mouth tight. But at last he found his voice and shrieked at them, and then they burst into a yell of obscene laughter and shrieked back at him, and scattered out of sight. He could not trace them. He supposes they hid in the deep bracken behind the old camp. 
Sometimes I can't understand my landlord at Castle Coke, Morgan went on. He's the village postmaster and has a little farm of his own. A decent, pleasant, ordinary sort of chap. But now and again he will talk oddly. I was telling him about these beastly children and wondering who they could be when he broke into Welsh. Something like the battle that is for age unto ages and the people take delight in it. So far Morgan, and it was evident that he did not understand at all. But this strange tale of his brought back an odd circumstance or two that I recollected, a matter of our little boy straying away more than once, and getting lost among the sand dunes, and coming back screaming, evidently frightened horribly, and babbling about funny children. We took no notice, did not trouble, I think, to look whether there were any children wandering about the dunes or not. We were accustomed to his small imaginings. But after hearing Morgan's story, I was interested, and I wrote an account of the matter to my friend, old Dr. Dutho of Hereford. And he, they were only visible, only audible to children, and the childlike. Hence the explanation of what puzzled you at first. The rumours, how did they arise? They arose from nursery gossip, from scraps and odds and ends of half-articulate children's talk of horrors that they did not understand, of words that shamed their nurses and their mothers. These little people of the earth rise up and rejoice in these times of ours, for they are glad, as the Welshman said, when they know that men follow their ways. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Jim. And we're going to talk about Out of the Earth, a short story by Arthur Mackin, I want to say, but it's not. It's Machen, right? Um, it's supposedly the proper name is Machen, but um, everyone says Arthur Mackin. Yeah. And uh, Mackin uh, was the name, a pen name anyway. It wasn't his family name. Oh, so. Okay. <laughs> Well, we can say it whatever we want then. Yeah, yeah. I, I I didn't know that that was a pseudonym. Um, oh, what is his real name? Because I, um, I just assumed I that think was like a Welsh. Predictably, it was Jones. Actually. What? Oh, now that's very Welsh. I just assumed yes, it was a, a, a sort of a odd Welsh name that I'd not heard of before. Yeah, it is Jones. <laughs> Which is the no most common Welsh name there is, right? Yes, Arthur Llewellyn Jones. So okay, the Llewellyn sounds Welsh anyway. Yeah. Mm. Where mm. where did the Machen come from then? I'm not sure. Of, um, I mean, I'm guessing because he say so he got his start as a writer. Um, because much like uh, the uh, the character in the uh, Manly Wellman story, mm -hmm. um, he, he uh, had a, a poem published mm -hmm. at a young age, and his family said, well, you've got a challenge, you should become a writer. And so they packed him off when he was still a teenager to London to be apprenticed to learn to become a journalist. And I, I would guess he, there was another Arthur Jones or many other Arthur Joneses writing. Oh, and yes, so of course. He needed a, an, an individual name. Uh, the name Arthur, now that I think about it, is some relevance to this story. Uh, but I, you know, I don't know that much about Machen uh, or Jones, as it were. Um, 
uh, you know, I know the great God Pan. Have you done a, that on your podcast, Mr. Jim Moon? Because I, I think yes, I've I did it. that. Yeah, I did a couple of years ago as a a two part reading and uh, did a follow up show discussing the original novel as well. Yeah, it's 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 his best known work. This one. I mean, I, I've read some of his other stuff, including a, I did a short story called The the Lost Club, which is a very interesting story uh, for reading short and deep. And that one is about two English gentlemen, jobless, you know, that their their job is to exist and go to clubs. <laughs> um, one day they uh, they get caught in the rain and they remember, one of them remembers, and they're, it's so strange, this story. They're identical guys. They're, they're virtually the same reason for being in London. They're dressed identically, except for, you know, one has a blue tie and the other one has a red tie or whatever it is. Um, and then they get caught in the rain, and one of them remembers that there's a club nearby, and they ask uh, an acquaintance of theirs w- exactly where it is, and they go to it, and it, it has a very uh, weird aspect inside. It's basically kind of like a... Uh, kind of a... Like the Hellfire Club, except uh, a lot less sex and drugs and stuff. It's more like, <laughs> um, let's read from this big, scary black book. And then they, the rain stops and they leave. And one of the guys who read from the book, he's never heard from again. Except he is heard from again. And so when they go back to try and find out what's going on, they, they can't find the club. The club never existed. It's a very weird story. <laughs> and I really like it. But uh, he is—he is truly Mackin is truly what I think of as the first weird fiction author, qua weird fiction author, as opposed to Poe, who he's doing everything and he does—I don't think he does Lovecraftian style weird fiction at all. I, I think he has some cosmicism for sure, but I don't think he's weird, you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And Mackin or Machen or Jones is Mr. Weird uh, in the way that Lovecraft isn't even, in a way. Because Lovecraft, well, my, you could feel, is fantasy in, in many respects, or horror, or cosmicism. But Machen doesn't really give me any firm ground to say, it is this. Sorry, I, I let you talk, because this is your story. You picked it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Machen was kind of... Um I mean, he's he's one of the great weird authors, and like M.R. James, he's one of the sort of bedrock authors that mm-hmm. has influenced and is still influencing writers to this day. Although, say, he's not as well known as say Lovecraft, mm-hmm. but he had a huge influence on Lovecraft. But the thing, the thing with Macken is Macken used to live this stuff. Uh, Macken was for a time involved with the uh, a real life magical society. Uh, the esoteric order of the Golden Dawn, who mm-hmm. counted uh, Alistair Crowley and uh, the poet W.B. Yeats among its members. Mm. Um, but you know, Macken was a, a genuine um, uh, sort of a mystic, you could you could say. I mean, um, he wasn't kind of a, he didn't have much time for occultists generally. He didn't stay long in the Golden Dawn, but and he came from a church-going family, and he sort of felt this kind of disenchantment um, with sort of conventional religion, uh, making him kind of, giving quite a, a secular sort of tint to his stories, but at the same time, he has this sort of sense of the personal sense of the transcendent 
of the power of history and landscape. And all his uh, fiction is about this idea of that it's not so much there's another dimension filled with evil alien gods and lost races. It's there's a more general point of that kind of in the modern world, people just see things on the surface and don't apprehend the meaning of things anymore. Um, and this story out of the earth is a very interesting one mm. because it's it's a very meta narrative because it's written in oh, response. So, so I was trying to figure out when the, yeah. the interior story starts because it's it seems to in the frame is framed and framed and framed and so deeply framed that the 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 actual scene that is out of the earth right is so nested that I don't think anybody. Would be like if you just picked up this story and said, you know, I don't know anything about this. You would like, what the hell is this about? You wouldn't even finish it. Um, well, listen, you have to know it's all about the hoplar he created with an earlier short story, The Bowman. Mm-hmm. I've done a um, show on that as well uh, for yeah. re- reading short and deep, and, and that one, uh, again, if you read this uh, the way I've pitched it to Eric Rabkin, is that it's not the story. Right, the story is not the story. The story is the story of the effect of the story. Because yes, very much so. Even uh, I think Machen or Macon is uh, Macken. I'm going to say Macken is embarrassed <laughs> by the story um, because it's only an okay story at best, right? But yeah, it, he calls it a disappointment himself. I, he was I, sort of. I, it's so. I mean, it's so insubstantial that I. I, I think if he. If he if he got paid for it, he would be he would be pleased. But if he got paid too much for it, he'd be embarrassed, right? Because it's yeah, he didn't make much money from it, and kind of you know he's just if you actually read the story of the Bowman, it's I mean I reread it um, for this show, uh-huh. and it's actually surprisingly funny. <laughs> There's a lot of humor in it, yes. and it was meant as something as a bit of whimsy to. Um, you know, cheer up the nation when it appeared in the newspaper in the early weeks of World War One, and things were going absolutely appallingly. And it was just meant as a you know a little light-hearted whimsy to you know make people feel a bit better about things and give people a little ray of hope. But because it was printed without his byline and without the label of being a short story, mm-hmm. people took it as a genuine report from the front line. And the effect was it had the effect of creating. Um, this legend of the Angel of the Mons, something that Macken, yeah, Mackens just struggled and you know to, to try and um, you know quash this, and uh, he's fighting it's against quite the tide. It's because nobody yeah, very wants to much, hear it. Uh, uh, and uh, <clears throat> this you know out of the earth is very much a story about how rumours take hold without any evidence. Um, I, I want to ask and, Paul about exactly what he because. I'm like I, I knew this I knew what the Bowman was, but even I who who was, just did that story very recently and I know I knew about this snow on your boots thing as well that rumor um I'm like I don't know if Paul's gonna be up for this if he hasn't so uh, did you try and read this story first and then look at because how did how did you encounter this Paul how how did I encounter the Bowman or the story uh, out of the earth um. I, I just read I start reading it straight up from from when you presented to me. Okay, Uh-oh. so I'm reading. Okay, <laughs> and 
it's like, okay, this is a weird metafiction. This is almost pre Borges. And so I was like, he's talking about another story that he himself has written. He really wrote this. And, and I had to go digging and look at the Bowman and look at the whole history of that, that modern myth, that modern legend. And it sounded, and then when I started reading about that, it's like, this sounds familiar. I must've come across that legend in other forms and doing a little Googling. Apparently it's, it's been so popular when, when it created that it's, it's spun off all sorts of uh, side projects and tales and stories and inserts and all sorts of other stuff that it's a, it became to use a modern term back in the early, century, a meme as a fact, yeah. a meme of the idea that, these British soldiers were protected by the ghosts of their ancestors firing longbows into the uh, to uh, to save them at a crucial point in the battle. But I, I found I found this story fascinating, and it's like it's, it's a, as I said, it's a metafictional. It starts as a metafictional response to a story that the narrator himself wrote. So the so the so is it autobiographical? Is he is this a different Machin than the one who actually wrote the original story? Who is Machen? I mm. mean, do we have a do we have one Machen, two Machen? What is really going on here? And I I found that delightfully. I mean, I I, I mean, I didn't find this so much as a so interesting from a. From no, it's a not a good horror, story. It's not a good story, right? It's no, a I, fascinating I find, document in a certain sense of of yeah. of a certain very specific time. This this came yeah. out in a in a magazine called TP's Weekly. On November 27, 1915. And within the text of this, he says last August, right? So last August is uh, August of 1915, right? Am I reading that right? Or is he talking about the previous August, uh, when the World War One actually well, the, started, the guns the, of the, August? Uh, well, the, the events, um, the retreat from Mons occurred in uh, August 1914, uh, Macken heard about it at the end of August, and uh, in an introduction to uh, a book which the Bowman was reprinted, he says uh, the the idea um, struck him, and he went to church, and then completely failed to listen to the deacon singing the gospel, and made up a story in his head. And mm. so the actual Bowman appears early September 1914, and um, then there's this huge hoplar about it, and it sort of dies down. But then six months later, it starts up again <laughs> and gets bigger and bigger and won't stop. And it still hasn't stopped to this day. You know, uh, I, I listen to a lot of weird podcasts. Um, one of them that I, I quite like, it's, it does not sound like something I should like because I don't like this sort of thing. But there's a podcast called um, Tinfoil Hat. And it's <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be about, you know, crazy people and conspiracies. And that's exactly what it is. But... Um, Part of being an adult uh, and liking conspiracies is actually um, just being interested in the truth. Like, as long as you don't, you know, make excuses for things, uh, you know, like rationalize things away, the idea that there's some, there are forces out there working against you um, is not completely insane because there are forces out there working against you. I mean, that's half of capitalism, right? Is they're mining this and they're doing that. So, um, one of the things that they they did they talked about recently is the um, the if you remember a couple of years ago, Clinton 
uh, was supposed to be something with something called Pizzagate, which was some ridiculous. Oh God. Okay. Oh right? yes, yeah. So mm. what's so interesting is that uh, one of the guys who was researching the hell out of this is like, not is it true? Because um, there are there are lots of really fucked up things going on in in government, including there are a lot of pedophiles in government, um, and a lot of them are powerful and they don't get punishment like regular plebes do because they have lawyers and they have friends, right? And and really, it's not my kid who's getting, you know, so a lot of it isn't, um, but as far as I can tell, uh, the Clintons are not particularly into children. They are into sex, for sure, at least some of them. <laughs> but they're not into children, right? But what's so funny is that it is doesn't come out of nowhere because there was a New York Clinton... Uh, sex scandal, and it happened. Oh yeah, years Anthony earlier. Weiner, huh? Anth- oh yeah, there was Anthony Weiner. Yeah. No, no, no. There was no? a town in New York called Clinton, and it happened years earlier that there was a sex scandal, uh, oh. uh, as in a child, ah. a child, uh, you know, abuse sex scandal in a town called Clinton in New York, and. It because of that, it was sort of like in the memory of people. You know, Mr. Jimun, you're saying six months later, it sort of, it, it mm-hmm. you couldn't be killed. That's the same thing that happens. Is is people say, oh yeah, I heard something about Clintons and 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 uh, child child sex rings, right? And there literally was a child sex ring in a in the town of Clinton, New York, and there was a scandal. But people then pick up that thread, you know, on the internet, and they don't do their research very well, as people don't, because they want to, you know, there's this self, self, I mean, he talks about that in this story, right, about all the letters he gets, and he's, he's very uh, offhand about it, but some of them are like death threats, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, because it's an idiot brought a gun to the, uh, to the pizza parlor's going to save the children right yeah but the thing is is these sometimes they're they're not easily killed these so there's actually two things going on i think there's there's bottom-up stories and top-down stories right so uh in the in the states right now there's a top-down story that the certain groups are pushing and then there's bottom-up stories that are, you know, so one would be, you know, the Clinton Pizzagate is a bottom-up story. A top-down one is a Russia, 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 right? This is not, you know, groundswelling of people out on the internet saying, you know, uh, Russia inter- interfered with the election. It's the, it's the losers of the election saying Russia interfered with the election and, and, and the president was collaborating with them or co- whatever the word. So... In a in a bottom up story, and that's what he talks about in here, right? Is that if he writes a story called the the Bowman, it gets twisted, translated into into the Angel of the Mons, and when he says no, no, no such story, that that's just my story that I wrote as a as a piece of fiction for the for the newspaper, people shit all over him and call him a conspiracy theorist and what about this evidence that isn't really evidence right uh, and what about this 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 person who testified who can't be found right uh, and he can't no matter what he does to try and tamp it down 
he can't stop it. It's it's uh it's fighting the tide. And so there's that, but there's also an, uh, he mentions this other story. Uh, Mr. Jim, will you tell us about the uh, the Russians? Well, yes, he alludes to the the Russian rumor, and this was a huge other World War One myth that's now largely been forgotten. But there was reports of Russian troops being seen in Britain, and um, from my reading on the subject, it started out as rumors that sort of span off an earlier set of World War rumors about a plague of spies, and then there's Russian spies. And then this got to, trans, you know, change into these friend-of-a-friend reports of seeing Cossacks at train stations heading south and, uh, you know, Russian soldiers being put up in guest houses on their way to the front line to help out Britain. Mm-hmm. And it, sort of, it was a huge flap over a series of months. And um, and what's interesting about uh, this story is once you start digging into it, you have the obviously the Bowman myth, then you have the Russian myth referenced, but also there's a third myth, which is the rape of Belgium. Right. Which was a whole other set of stories that went around about atrocities perpetrated in Belgium. And that's now, originally, a top-down one as opposed to yeah. these uh, bottom-up ones, right? Well, the thing that's interesting with the Belgium story is it began as a rumor among German troops about atrocities committed against them by uh, Belgium natives resisting uh, their invasion. And those rumors of German troops were welcomed into a village and fed poison food and then strung up, had hands cut off and buckets full of eyes were found. and, And Belgium... Women and children were proudly wearing necklaces of German soldiers' eyeballs. Oh, my God. It's it's incredible. But then these rumors get flipped. And once Germany has control of Belgium and what people in Britain and the rest of Europe are hearing about atrocities committed by German soldiers as they're taking Belgium, where they're bayoneting children and crucifying soldiers and Lots of stories of rapes and hands cut off, eyes plucked out, disembowelings, breasts cut off, <laughs> and every conceivable atrocity appears. And the reason all three, the Bowman, the Russians, and the uh, rape of uh, Belgium, the reasons these stories proliferated was that in the uh, British press, there was a censor on all wartime reports. Mm -hmm. And there was actually very little information coming back from the front line. And therefore, obviously, newspapers, which were the prime, you know, source for any kind of, you know, current affairs or news at the time, journalists were like, you know, trying to get statements from soldiers, from letters sent home. And, you know, there was a... As one war correspondent at the Times has put it, the liars did very well in this period of selling yeah. stories to journalists. And there's this whole, and I mean, I've got a whole book um, by James Hayward, Myths and Legend of the First World War, that, and it's chock full of all these bizarre rumors that, that circulate about the Germans. Another one was the German corpse factories, that the Germans, the vile Hun, were actually recycling their own dead soldiers and using oh. the fat to make candles for the war effort. <laughs> but it, it, because there was this sort of news blackout and, you know, official news was very dry and didn't really say what was going on, you had this um, a climate for what you call fake news. Yes. It's very, very, it's very relevant today, I think. I mean, yeah, I well, the thing is... 
Yeah, yeah what's interesting is the story, the actual rumour this story concerns about the horrible little children and atrocities being committed in the English countryside by children, that emerges in the you know, Edwardian equivalent of the internet, which is pamphlets and letters mm. and literally, you know, <laughs> paper, the paper internet of the time, as it were. Mm -hmm. And then it creeps up from the bottom, as you say, and then it gets, you know, he says it gets into the papers in a roundabout fashion as an illusion. Everyone's talking about it. It's not even reported on almost. And sure. it, you know, turns up in debates about education. And it's, it's really fascinating a story about kind of how the nature of, of rumour and um, myth, how it begins and how, you know, it does get sort of transmitted in, in society, particularly in times of uncertainty and trouble. Yeah, it, I think there are a, a ton of parallels to our modern situation. So we've got we've got lots of uh, official news sources, right? There's CNN and CBS, MSNBC and uh, Fox News and right. And, and people have for a long time thought, oh, yes, Fox News is not real news, it's fake news. Now everybody's accusing everybody of having fake news, and the thing is, is they're all correct because almost none of them are actually interested in, you know, any investigative reporting. Mostly, what's going on is, well, a lot of it is, you know, CIA has infiltrated a lot of news agencies, and this is not a conspiracy. This is actually there's good evidence for it, um, and what they've done is basically said what what we're going to do is we're going to give you the the official line, you report this and uh we'll give you a continued access and because these are owned by giant corporations who don't want to spend money on actual investigative reporting and do want to control the narrative because it's good for them um they they are basically giving us a lack of news and what's happening is people are filling that gap on the internet with whatever they can find and half the time it's it's bad but we're also getting a lot of fake news from the top. So the whole Russia story, right? Russia did this, Russia did that. So if you actually look into it, right, those 13 Russian trolls who were who were um, recently indicted, which is hilarious because they, they live in Russia. They're not going to get arrested, right? Um, <laughs> I believe 56% of the money spent on those Facebook ads was spent after the election. And... Uh, the the remaining of it was not just spent just to support uh, Trump, right? This is the this is the big gotcha moment they've got, other than the other thousand gotcha moments that again do not work. Um, th those thirteen Russian trolls, well, they work for something called the Internet Research Agency, which which sounds really scary. It's like a it's a it's a private you know, uh, contractor for the Russian government reporting directly to Putin. Well, the guy who owns it does know Putin. They're not actually great friends, but he does know him. And he is in the business of uh, trolling people on the Internet, especially people in the States. But it's for money, not for... So what they, what they do is they, they make these fake accounts, like a lot of you can see on Twitter. They make fake accounts, and then they add... Anybody who's been added to, you know, a follower, they see these are now people we can sell shit to. So we can sell them fake. So we can, like, if you've got some product you want to promote or some idea you want to promote and you're some other person outside of the Internet Research Agency, we can, we have these rubes 
who followed these stupid accounts and memes that we've attempted to make so that we can target those as your audience, right? So it's all for commercial purposes. It's not for, it's not for uh, you know, throwing the election. They don't care about the election. That, uh, that has nothing to do with it. <coughs> do governments interfere with that? Yes, of course they do. Um, does did the Russians uh, probably have a preference? Absolutely, I'm sure they did. Did they do it through this? No, they didn't. And you know the idea that Trump somehow uh, helped uh, <laughs> somehow helped with his amazing hacking skills. The Russians hack the DNC uh, um, emails and servers yeah. is like it, it doesn't it, how. Stupid! Do you have to believe, be to believe that Trump had anything to do with that? Is he a bad guy trying to, trying to fuck things over? Absolutely. Uh, did he do that? Absolutely not. Is he is he making uh, lots of deals with the Russians? Absolutely. So are so are as everybody else. Because if you're a rich guy, that's what you do. You try and make money everywhere, and borders don't mean anything. So we've got, we've got a fake news, you know, push 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 on the Russia Russia Russia, and everybody who isn't down with it is called a, a Putin puppet or getting paid in rubles, right? It's ridiculous. Puppet, puppet, no, you're <laughs> the puppet. <laughs> right, that's right. Um, or, or you know, the opposite is of a Bernie bro. And I, I love to see it when all these women, <laughs> who you know, you look at their Twitter profile and it says, proud Bernie bro. <laughs> Some women. It's <laughs> just random women ah. on the internet. Uh, so there, there are these top-down ones that do generate some interest and oh my god i want to point out how i i yeah i tweeted this at you guys earlier this week uh army recruiters i'm reading from a post i tweeted um and quoting from a wikipedia entry army recruiters reported problems in explaining the origins of world war one in legalistic terms when they're trying to recruit people right so hence an evolution in tactics say i uh or different tactics for different classes or the intellectual versus the visceral and i and i have a comparison of two posters uh, propaganda posters from world war one first one is um the scrap of paper right they made this huge deal about the germans saying the scrap of paper and then they show the actual document with all the official seals of the and signatures of all these famous people, right? It says, these are the signatures and seals of the representatives of the six powers to the quote-unquote scrap of paper, the treaty signed in 1839 guaranteeing the independence and neutrality of Belgium. Palmerston signed for Britain, Bulow for Prussia. Well, Prussia doesn't even exist as a, a separate state at this point, right, in 1914. And then it says, this, that's when this poster came out, the Germans have broken their pledged words and devastated Belgium. Help to keep your country's honor bright by restoring Belgium, her liberty. And it's not its liberty, right? Suddenly it's a female. Um, enlist mm. today, right? That's the argument. Now, as I pointed out, like, well, I guess that has some appeal, but uh, basically what the argument comes down to is 70 years ago, your great-grandfathers and their great-grandfathers signed a document that made certain guarantees about Belgium's neutrality. That's essentially the argument, right? Mm -hmm. Cut to 1918, when not uh, this is not a poster from, from uh, Britain. This is a poster from uh, 1918 United States. And the poster just says, remember Belgium, and then buy bonds uh liberty loan blah 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 but the picture 
is of a, a German helmeted guy with a big bushy mustache like the Kaiser um, dragging off a child female um, you know presumably she's unwilling presumably for rape or murder and both or both yeah. and in the background Belgium is burning right uh, slightly different tactic <laughs> one is I, uh, and I think I, and I would argue one that hits you in the feels like oh my god oh, we gotta exactly. stop the German it's German. lizard brain right it's lizard <laughs> yeah, brain, it's we're, lizard brain. B- we're under attack the uh, uh, how's, how'd they put it on CNN? It was, uh, or maybe it was MSNBC. Um, uh, the, the, the DNC hack, was, oh, no, it wasn't the DNC hack. It was the 13 Russian trolls and their, their memes about uh, Jill Stein. There was one about Jill Stein and the rest were about uh, either Bernie or um, Trump, right? None of them is supporting Hillary because nobody wants that audience, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did they say? Wow. What did they say? They said uh, on the news, literally, they have these guys come on and they say, this was Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, really, where, <laughs> where you like sunk, tried to sink half the military fleet of the United States um, and attacked uh, one of its territories and killed people. <laughs> this is the same thing as, as uh, what was $100,000 spent on, on some Facebook ads. Come on. <laughs> It's <laughs> not the same thing, right? So, of course, nobody, like, wants... But the thing is, is you can't stamp... You can't... That... Uh, the story about the Clintons and the sex scandal thing is still going on. I mean, it's not as hot as it used to be, but some people are still... They still think it's a thing, right? And and that's uh, uh, officially... Well, <clears throat> not officially. It's, it's bullshit, right? As far as we can tell, there's mm. absolutely no... Especially when you understand the... So that's why this story is so relevant, but it's got so much context around it. When we finally get to the the thing that is this story, I think he's actually making a, a really powerful point about war, right? Am I wrong? When he's no, definitely. Talking about the children, definitely. I, mean, I didn't know what to make of it, but the, the children are doing... How does Morgan, the childlike man who's... Enjoying his beer and enjoying his cheese and his wine, uh, his his beer, cheese and bread every day. Looking out from Castle Cock, uh, which is somewhere in uh, southern Wales, Wales coast, right? Yep. Mm. It's the red. It's called the Red Keep. Is that what it's called? I think it's the Red Keep. It translates to. Um. He. How does he? He says, read about Belgium right. and think they, that they could not have been more than five or six years old. Yeah, so he's saying, he, I mean, it's the, it's the buckets of eyes, right? It's the, it's the gleeful people. How's it, how's it go here? Uh, they were to the ear what slime is to the touch. And then the words... Every foulness, every filth, abomination of speech. Blasphemy struck like blows at the sky that sank down into the pure, shining depths, defiling them. He was amazed, and he peered over the green wall of the fort, and there in the ditch he saw a swarm of noisome children, horrible little stunted creatures with old men's faces, with bloated faces, with sunken little, uh, sunk, little sunken eyes, with leering eyes. It was worse 
than uncovering a brood of snakes or a nest of worms. And that's basically the entire. That's the. That's, that's the, the horror. Sorry. That's the yeah. That's <laughs> about the entirety of the horror of the story. That's right. All the metafiction. He gets to one paragraph. Yes, <laughs> and that's, and and it's contrasted with what Morgan's there for, right? He says he came. Morgan came daily, as he said, to dream of Avalon, to purge himself from the fuming corruption of the streets. So I I, I was thinking about what that like. Is it? Is this? Uh, this has got to be how Mackin feels. But also, is this a true story, Mr. Jim? Were these rumors about funny children actually in existence, or is this a, another put on like the Bowman? But I, it's um, so well, mad I, I can't fucking tell. <laughs> well, the, the, well, the thing is, I think kind of um, the idea that there are either in rural places or urban places it depends on the the era but there's a there's a certainly i think from the 19th century onwards when people gained a kind of what we'd call now a social consciousness there's an idea that there are places that are deprived and poor where the children have turned completely feral um a british prime minister in the 90s famously you know, referred to them as the underwolves, the underdogs wow. of society have gone bad. Um, uh, in America, there was a, a huge fear about, you know, a, a class of youth who had, in the urban areas, had gone completely out of control and were now super predators. Yep, I remember uh, that. Yeah, yeah, in the 80s. Yep, uh, yep. Uh, guess who, who is one of the people to say super predators? Yeah, Trump. No, a, Clinton. Uh, oh, Clinton? Oh, Clinton. Clinton. It's one of the things that she had to live down because she was oh, she was right. one of these 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 pushers and and uh, you know along Reagan and Clinton, uh, the President Clinton, um, were pushing. That's why there's like seven times the number of people. It was it was in 1980 there was like a hundred thousand people in prison in the United States. Now it's seven hundred thousand or something like that. It's ridiculous. It's seven times, and there's no, there's no like increase in crime. It was increase in, in you know, harvesting of slaves basically, and it's like it's it's all, oh, it's fucked up. But yeah, that that idea of the you know, crack is driving people or whatever new drug it is. That is that a top down or a bottom up? It feels like it's a top down now, but at the time you're thinking it's a bottom up. Right. Well, I think it's a bit of both. It's one of those, like a lot of so-called moral panics, it begins with people being scared of, say, of you know, what they used to call juvies and JDs in the fifties. Right. You know, we call for that. Yeah, we you know we call in Britain now. You know, they were called hoodies in the nineties and early twenties. Now we call them chavs. Yeah, and you know, we've demonized a whole class of people. And don't get me wrong, there is a there is a subclass of thuggish people out sure. there who, who who earn that, you know, those epithets, you know, quite quite happily. But um, when, when, when somebody but said, what happens is they get picked up by politicians and then they become this more powerful symbol. And it, it starts to become like you get elements of class war and it's kind of, well, you know, you, we can't give, you know, poor people welfare. They'll just spend it on crack and buy knives. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, it, 
what starts maybe as a bo- genuinely bottom down with rumours of oh it's not safe to go down the shops anymore because suddenly it's mainstream news and politicians banging drums and you know you see it with in the flaps over well rock and roll uh, beatles records drugs computer games the internet video nasties horror comics right horror comics uh, yeah Dungeons yeah, and things, things start bottom Dungeons down. It starts as bottom down stories, but there's always a certain class of politician who's looking for that kind of thing to suddenly to talk up and make it a big top down story. Yeah, and remember, to, video uh, game uh, violence yeah. is probably the most most recent of these sort of, you know, the ones that the politicians latch, latch, latch onto. Um, mm. There was uh, one, um, remember Trayvon Martin. Right, he's shot by George oh, yes. Zimmerman. Yeah. There was a Geraldo Rivera, I think he's CNN, right? He says um, half the reason Trayvon Martin is dead is because of his hoodie, right? Like uh, the piece of clothing is what it, it, we know what class of person he is is he wears a hoodie. Um, are, are hoodies associated with uh, some class of person? Yes, they are. Um, they're also you know, just things to keep your ears warm and keep your head down, mm-hmm. especially if you have a, a messy hair, right? You don't want to <laughs> show your messy hair. Like, this is not what killed him, right? The guy with a gun, I mean, the whole point is is people manipulate the facts and there's almost no shaking them out of it, is, is his point. I don't know, though, like, the funny children, was this a real rumor? Do you know anything about this being a real World War One rumor? Because it seems like he's starting one if it isn't, like he <laughs> did with the Angel of the Mons, which is probably not a good idea. But he does it anyways with this story. So I, I'm assuming that there is a story behind this. Or, or, or uh, maybe, maybe this is a case of just like the angel wasn't a real thing, here's another r- unreal thing. To, to, to point to the fact that the angel is fake, here I am talking about how people thought the angel was real, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slip in another one just to show you just how it's done. This is how I make this stuff up, guys. It's like the angel's fake because here's another fake one for you. Maybe that's that's any interpretation of this. What yeah, do you think, He's Jeff? making trouble for himself, right, if that's the case. <laughs> well, it's one of the, I think the kind of the whole – the myth of the JD, as we might put it. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that actually does um, bubble up later in society. And here he's kind of actually ahead of the curve. Because um, certainly in, in Britain in the 1950s, um, you've got the Teddy Boys and the, the Rockers and the Mods who um, would regularly meet up at seaside towns and effectively just have massive riots and fight each other particularly at bank holidays, and that was almost a bank holiday British tradition for quite a while. You can see it in the movie Quadrophenia that's at uh, um, mid-60s. Um, and it, it ran for decades, but it, here, this idea of seaside town sort of, you know, quite going off and stop being, you know, quiet country retreats and become, you know, full of packs of wild proles running riot, drinking and fighting. I mean, I think he's really a couple of decades ahead of the curve <laughs> about what social fears were going to be here, probably, you know, unwittingly. But um, I think this, these bits in this story mentions how the funny children's story has been used in arguments for education. With one side right. saying, well, this is what happens when you educate poor children. They get ideas or if about you the station. Yeah. <laughs> or if you don't educate them, they'll, they'll run wild. And there's there's another reference as well, kind of, you know, worse than London slum children. 
right? And so it's kind of a the, the seeds of it are, are there. I think it's something Macken sort of picked up on, having you know, he lived in London and you know worked on newspapers and, but I think the kind of that kind of social myth of the um, the bad seeds, you know, the evil children is something that sort of comes later and. You know, you get in the fifties, you get kind of the midwitch cuckoos and mm. uh, and the whole raft of other sort of you know evil children stories and the whole you know various subgenres based around you know teenage hoodlums of you know whether they're skinheads, teddy boys, hippies. You know, there's a whole there's tons of cheap pulp stories. You know, terrific, glamorizing that sort of thing. There's a terrific short story that really summarizes what you're saying. I, I must have read this in high school. Um, it's by Graham Greene. It's called The Destructors. It's oh, from yes. 1954. Yeah. And I mm. love this story because at the end, you realize that the only reason these boys are doing any of the things they're doing is because they got nothing to do. And that's what boys do. <laughs> and, and and maybe you get the sense that, yeah. So I'll just read the Wikipedia plot summary. Have you read this story, Paul? I don't recall I have. I, it's it, uh, it's resonated so strongly with me because I sort of saw some of myself in it. <laughs> I'll just read this this Wikipedia plot summary. Set in the mid-50s, this story is about the Wormsley Common Gang, a boys gang named after the place where they live. The protagonist, Trevor, or T, devises a plan to destroy a, beautifully two, a beautiful 200-year-old house that survived the Blitz. The gang accepts the plan... Um, and T, their new leader, executes it when the, own, when the owner of the house, Mr. Thomas, whom the gang call Old Misery for no reason, um, is away during a bank holiday weekend. Their plan is to destroy the house from the inside, then tear down the remaining outer structure. Mr. Thomas returns home early, however, and the gang locks him in the outhouse. T refuses to stop until the destruction job is complete, because even the facade is valuable and could be reused. Inside, they find a mattress filled with money, which they burn. The final destruction of the house occurs when a lorry pulls away a support pole from the side of the house. Mr. Thomas is released from the outhouse by the lorry driver to see the rubble of what was once his home. When the driver finds the situation funny, Mr. Thomas is incensed, but he is still unable to stop laughing. Um, it's not a comedy, this story. It, it's like the most bizarre and perverse story because like at the beginning of the story i remember what are they somebody's plan for what they're going to do that day they call themselves a gang but the only thing that really makes them a gang is they they want to be a gang they're one of the the leaders then leaders plan is let's hop on the back of the buses and get free rides right so <laughs> not and it's not to a particular place it's just a sense of, like, fuck you, or sticking it to the man, we're getting a ride for free, right? They don't even want to go anywhere. They just want to have that the sense of power, and they have nothing... To, this is actually the argument that so many politicians make, and maybe rightly so, about how you have to have uh, sort of community centers? <laughs> Some place for the kids to play basketball, Midnight basketball, right? yes. Right? It's all designed to prevent them from basically going around vandalizing things because it's uh, my feeling. Uh, I'm not a psychologist, but I've lived with my own psyche for a long time. Is that everybody needs to have power? They have to have a sense of able to get stuff done. But the problem is, is you know, if you've ever during your lunch break 
made a house of cards and had somebody walk by the room you're in and see that house of cards that you're building, the the impulse to come in and just shake the table or blow on the stack of cards you've built is so strong in sort of young people that it's almost irresistible. And so the impulse for destruction is the easiest and most rewarding because it's instant and it doesn't require any effort, right? It's just like, hey, I just destroyed what you made, haha, right? Whereas the, the actual construction, the, the building up is much harder. And that is sort of is what is encapsulated by the destructors for me. Why it's such a power story is because it's really tr- it's it's speaking to something real, and I and that's why I think this this out of the earth feels so, even though it's hard to get into, and it's hard to understand without the context. The the Russians would snow still have snow on their boots. Obviously, makes no sense if they just came in from Siberia. <laughs> I mean, a, a train ride from Scotland might not be that far, but I I'm pretty sure that the snow on their boots is 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 down right and i don't think like you you can underestimate this story saying well it's just you know sort of this but what happens in 1919 instead of having russians coming in to help with the british war effort uh on the western front the british and the americans and the canadians which is so fucking insane invade siberia to try and reverse the russian revolution and this is completely forgotten. <laughs> it's like it's been wiped out of history. We know about the Boer War, and we know about World War One, and we know about World War Two, and we know about uh, the Korean War, and maybe Americans know about the Vietnam War, and some other people have heard of it too. Uh, not to mention the 17-year-long war that's been going on in the Middle East because of 9/11. I guess is the excuse, right? And going to be 18 years pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, or the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, what Afghanistan, happened Pakistan. to the anti-Russian war from 1919, where British and Canadians and Americans go in with snow and get snow on their boots, right? And what's funny is that um, there's a show, a great show called The Sandbaggers. I know. Yep, uh, we've discussed this before. This, right? Yeah. Um, this is actually mentioned. They they talk about snow on your boots, um, but it's actually reversed. Right, he still has snow on his boots, as in he just came from Russia, and he's British, right? So it becomes the rumor becomes the reality in a certain sense, and you can't stop it, right? People become tainted because of rumor, and reality becomes tainted because of rumor, because people are unwilling. Like if you, people if want you to push believe enough, the rumor. They want to believe the legend. They, they, want to they believe will the not, not believe the rumor, right? No matter how much evidence you present, because they don't care about evidence. They care about what it means. That they're, they're, and they don't want to hear that it's not true. And I don't, I don't think we can get rid of this problem. But it's so funny to see it sort of um, fossilized in this story. It, and it, it was such a weird one for you to pick, Mr. Timoon, because it's not a <clears> traditional, <throat> conventional, weird story at all. It's the opposite. I thought when I heard the title and I, I, I sort of read it the first time, I thought, oh, oh, these are, these are kind of like what Robert E. Howard calls the little people, right? They're the uh, elves and trolls and gremlins that live under the earth, out of the earth, right? Mm. 
And I guess that's there, but that's not really the point of this. Well, it doesn't feel like the point of the story now. And that would be a traditional, very fantasy, weird tale. Yeah. In, yeah. In, so we've gone from fantasy to fake. The, now the story is a fake news story rather than a fantasy story about fake about fairies and elves. Right. We've recontextualized this story for our modern age. I mean, if you had read the story in, say, 1980, it would just be kind of there. But now in this new age of incessant social media, fake news on all sides, no no, no even attempted objective reality or objective truth-telling anymore, the story has a strange new power. Well done, Mr. Moon, in picking the story. Did you intend that? Well, it is. It's kind of... I came across this because I kind of, for my own show, I wanted to read some Arthur Macken, but kind of all these mm-hmm. most famous stories are novels, which <laughs> is yeah, a yeah. big the time seal, The white powder. And um, yeah. I've got to know, I mean, my, it was in, actually this story was in um, the first Macken I ever got was a, a 1970s Panther paperback edition. Um, which I sort of inherited from my, from my auntie, who's a bit of a horror fan. And I remember reading it and thinking, oh, that was... I, I like the end, the idea of the, these cruel, dwarf, old, horrible old men, sort of little elves who are terribly cruel. And, you know, I got, when I read it years ago, I got the, the idea of kind of... Yes, it's, it's about the horror of war, and, you know, they're appearing because in the time of the First World War, mankind is being as cruel and bloodthirsty as they are. But I felt that it took a long time to get there. And which when mm-hmm. I looked, went back to it and then suddenly go, what What was the Russian rumor? What, what What's this mentioned of Belgium? I mean, and I know going to Hitchhiker's Guide the Galaxy, Belgium is the worst swear word known in the galaxy. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's kind of, what's going on there? And then you connect it to Angels. You go, oh, it's about his writing of the bowman and you start digging into it and and it is it's a really sort of fascinating story about say how the layers of story build up and gain a, a weird momentum that so that people won't accept evidence to the contrary because that would break the chain in their head almost and you know the story has to go on and keep replicating um it, it's interesting in the uh, in the collection, The Bowman and Other Stories, where The Bowman was first reprinted, uh, Macken has a, a lengthy introduction about the whole affair. And um, and at the end, he does say, he says, you know, the question is, why is a society that's been so grossly plunged into materialism at the present time willing to accept a tale of the supernatural without one tittle or tattle of evidence? And he said, the answer, of course, is in the question. Mm. And I, uh, that's relevant to us, I think, because for the, for us and our current struggles with um, truth in news, whereas all these rumours in the First World War came out of a vacuum of any news, yes. that's what we, we have. Yeah, that's we've, why it's, it's we've like got a similar now. vacuum, but but not from yeah. a lack of news, but from too much news, and it's a signal to noise ratio problem we have now. Well, almost none of the news we're getting is actually news, right? The the breaking news thing is is actually half the time it turns out to be false, right? Like they just 
Well, that, it, it, that's the seedbed for all new conspiracy theories is that you find it's based on, well, they said this and you trace it back. It comes from a breaking news report where news anchors are on the, on the air with cameras pointed at an empty street where nothing is happening currently. And that's, and, you know, these official unknown sources saying stuff that's going on. And then later we get a better picture. But this is all preserved on the internet and people said, but look, this is a cover-up because originally they said there were three gunmen running amok, but now right, there's only right, one. Right. <laughs> and this is how it begins. And, you know, you have these just factoids, that, you know, that were just made by people trying to fill dead air on rolling news channels. <laughs> and that's how it begins now. It's, 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 it's very interesting. I find, I mean, I write on my blog a regular sort of series of articles on folklore and when i dig into things i often find there's a modern level of folklore of where people have put something dubious or made up on a on an article of their own and it finds its way onto wikipedia then it's copied and pasted and everyone accepts it as a fact like krampus if you read Right. Take a random, random reading of web pages on Krampus. You'll find about at least half of them have the claim that the name means Talon and he was an ancient Norse demon. That's absolute bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you know it, that probably came from someone who used the name Krampus in some gaming context. And they, they, I found other things. You, you trace the things there's um, a thing about how all shows on on halloween right they, yeah how every everything people believe about halloween's fucking bullshit right yeah pretty much and then <laughs> and even in in the uk they don't even know that halloween is not an american thing right mm. that's the modern uh, myth that it's been it's like you know I mean, i've got a recurring saying on my show is that the received wisdom says this but as we often find the received wisdom is always wrong <laughs> And it is, yes, as, it you is. know, it gets, it gets, you know, stuff gets passed around these factoids and it, it's, it's very corrosive. And, um, you know, it's, um, on one hand, you have the, the internet is a wonderful medium that's, you We're know, allowed me to have a, well, it, well, I'm not sure it's a new dark age. It's a new maze age of where it's very difficult to, to find the truth, particularly if you're, you know, as many people I mean, are, it shouldn't You've be a dark age with all this light and all this internet. But uh, it, 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 people, uh, we're we're like we're, we're trying to like just perceive reality correctly because we're swamped in information, perhaps. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's up. It's it's a dark age because it's all obfuscation. Mm-hmm. I want I want to I want to come back to a point I made earlier because I I think it it is it, it's a nice contrast to what's going on. Um, so. I keyed onto it for a couple of reasons. First, I had to try and figure out where this story was set. And at one point in the story, he says, I'm not going to tell you where this is actually set, but I'm not sure who's saying that. If it's Mackin, the outer narrator, the inner narrator, the inner, inner narrator, because there's so many narrators. Um, but I'm just like looking the places up as we go. So Manavon, I believe is a real place, although it's not spelled that way anymore. Castlecock is a real place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the places I looked up was uh, Glastonbury Tor, because that is pretty. That's very close. yeah that, yeah that's very Arthurian. Mm. And that's the whole point I'm making is is that the Arthurian legend is actually related and in here. First, he says in the sentence, "Here came Morgan. Morgan who? Morgan Le Fay. That's the that's the name most associated with uh, with Glastonbury Tor, right?" 
and and that as the place of Avalon. Um, but this is Morgan as a, as a guy. It also means mor- morning, right? Um, Here came Morgan daily, as he said, to dream of Avalon and to purge himself, and to purge is to get rid of sickness, right? Get rid of evil within. Purge himself of the fuming corruption of the streets. I, I, I said this whole line before, but I just think it, it can't be understated that that the myth of Avalon, this seems to be a bottom-up story that bubbled up again and again and becomes, you know, in is it Jeffrey of Monmouth? Yeah, Jeffrey of Monmouth. Mm-hmm. And then we get, uh, what's the, L'Amour d'Arthur, who's that? Mallory. Mallory. Mallory, right? Okay, and we get we get sort of the version. Um, you know, the one I I I always go to is Excalibur, the movie. Um, <laughs> yes. Because John it's, the great, it's just amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you watch Excalibur, you get it feels like there's a filter, like a little gel filter in front of everything, and makes everything feel like it is in La Feyland. Right in the land of the fairy, which is right in her name, Morgan Le Fay. Um, and when you, when I was explaining this to my students, was uh, going through this story because this is a really weird story to go through with students. You have to do a lot of meta explanation. Um, I was realizing that that Le Fay and I mean the story of her, what she at least in oh, oh that's my students coming. Ha ha ha. <laughs> the story of Morgan Le Fay is she has sex with her brother, half brother, yep. and makes a baby who is. I'm just gonna lock my students in. Hold on. Hang on one second. We are running really late today. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Hopefully, I'll cut this. <laughs> I'm gonna have to trim some of it. Um, so Morgan Le Fay has sex with her brother, who makes a baby named Mordred. Mordred is killed by Arthur, but is in the process. Arthur wounds. Uh, Arthur is wounded by Mordred, and then he goes to the island of Avalon, where he is healed by his sister and the mother of his child. And that's the story, right? Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Yep. This is kind of like a... how do, It's almost like a story of how you get out from the horror of the children, the Belgian children, the, the Belgian monsters, the Belgian rape. The horror of war. It, yeah, it, it's an escape, trying to escape from that attempt to try to heal yourself afterwards. Internecine war, though, right? It, war within the family, rather than... And, and considering how all the monarchs of Europe were related to each other through Victoria, it is an internecine war, just like the Arthurian legend. Yes, yes. there's a picture of, of the Kaiser. I was looking at a magazine the other day. A picture of the Kaiser and the Tsar on one of each other's yachts i think they're both docked in in the baltic somewhere or they're tied up together anchored in in the baltic and you know giving each other hugs and having dinner together and then two years later it's like they're at war this has been the sff audio podcast please join us at www.sffaudio.com Thank you.
I think we got a show, guys. I think, yep. <laughs> I think we got a show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. I really Enjoyed appreciate that tremendously. you reading both of these. No, really good fun. Uh, great fun Two reading the Wellman in particular. For the mm-hmm. price of one. I'm glad. I'm glad you liked the Wellman. I I just found it and I thought it was terrific. And it's so short that it really deserves to be mm. uh, heard by everybody. Mm. And you did a great job with it. Thank you. That's a All right. Very well, I I don't I don't know when the next uh, show is because I am out of the loop. I've been an hour off. Everything's off. My students show up early. <laughs> our, our, our next show is War of the Worlds. Okay, when is that? Next week? Next week.